Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, So we are about to come to the end of our series uh, called The Day of the Lord. If you've been with us Uh, You know that we have been uh, spending the last several weeks, the weeks leading up to Easter, uh, looking at the minor prophets. Our main focus has been to look at the various uh, topics and themes of each of the minor prophets. Uh, And in particular, we're trying to see how their, uh, their themes are all kind of pointing us to this day, this day of the Lord. It's a day that we've considered uh, is a day that in many ways is still coming. Uh, And throughout the series, what we've done is we've, we've looked at Israel a people who had experienced uh, judgment uh, as a result of their idolatry and their wickedness and their injustice. Uh, We saw how they had been conquered uh, and brought into exile as a result of their wickedness. Uh, And that's for us, similar to uh, Israel, we look ahead to the day of the Lord. We can look ahead at that coming day when the Lord's purposes come as either a day that ought to be met with fear or a a day of great joy. And our experience of that day is very dependent on our relationship to the coming of the Lord. These are the things that we've been processing over the last several weeks. Uh, We'll actually be wrapping up this series next week by looking at the resurrection of Jesus and how that plays into this biblical theme of day of the Lord. But as you may know, uh, today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day when Christians remember uh, with jubilant celebration coming of Jesus as he enters into the holy city in Jerusalem where the temple of God resided and where Jesus would begin what we call now the Holy Week, the week leading up to his death and eventual resurrection. And what I want to do today is maybe a little bit different than what we normally do with our time. But what I want to do, I want to look at our passages, which are the minor prophets of Malachi, Zechariah, and Haggai, to give a bit of a, a biblical theology of one of the most important themes of the Bible, specifically the temple of God. Each of these passages that we see today are referencing the temple in some way, and all of them actually give us a backdrop of the celebration that eventually would come on Palm Sunday. 
And so I want to try to fit all these puzzle pieces together so that you can see the really beautiful narrative arc of the Bible that proclaims the coming of a king, the restoration of a temple, and how all of that comes to a head on Palm Sunday. Now, fair warning, I'm going to go through some things pretty quickly so we can get some, through some, through some uh, theological categories and some historical narrative, uh, but I want us to see the central theme of the temple in the Christian faith. And so to do that, let's consider a destroyed temple, a constrained temple, and then finally a cosmic temple. All right, let's see what I mean. First, a destroyed temple. Uh, first, we should keep in mind some really important things about the temple in Israel. All right, so the temple was conceived, uh, conceived of and planned by King David, uh, in many ways Israel's greatest king, but it would not be until his son Solomon took the throne that the temple would actually be built. And it was a magnificent temple that was built. Solomon, with the great wealth that had been accumulated for the nation of Israel, built this massive and extravagant temple to the Lord. It's at its highest point, we're told, it was nearly 20 stories high. Also, fun fact, 1 Kings 6 tells us that even though it was this monstrosity, it was built in complete silence. We're told that there was no hammer or axe or any tool of iron that could be heard in the house of the Lord while it was being built. All the stone was carved and shaped at the quarry before it was brought to the actual site. And this was done for the sake of reverence and awe as the temple was built. It was an absolute marvel. But with that in mind, why go to such great lengths to build this temple? Well, the temple existed as a symbol of God's rule and reign, and it overlapped with what many believe to be God's heavenly residence, meaning this temple interacted with God's heavenly throne in various ways, and it was being built as a representation of his, creation, or of his presence in his creation. And on top of that, it was being built in Jerusalem because Israel was the chosen people of God. They were to be a light to the world, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And through them, God was going to accomplish his great redemption, a redemption that would bless the nations. And so the temple was an important signifier of God's presence with his people. But this idea of God's presence uh, residing with his people actually precedes the nation of Israel. In fact, this notion of temple and God's presence actually goes all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. What we see in Genesis 1 is uh, we're told there that God was, you know, of course, creating the universe. He does so in six days. He rests on the seventh day, and he delights in his creation, for he saw all that he had created was good, and that his presence was fully and completely with his people in his creation. His people, of course, being those that he would eventually place into the garden, the Garden of Eden. Uh, Adam and Eve were there in perfect communion with God. His presence among them. Those made in his image interacted with him where his presence resided. They walked with God. They talked with God. They lived in an unbroken relationship with God. This, my friends, creation, this garden, was the first temple. It was the first place that God's presence was with his people. And Adam and Eve, in many ways, they were the, the first priests, the ones who worked and served in the temple, a temple called Eden. But of course, if you know the story of the Bible, 
as a result of their rebellion, this delightful paradise of Eden was destroyed as a result of Adam's disobedience. And Adam and Eve are then sent into exile, removed from this temple garden, alienated from this land that God had given to them. They lost that unbroken relationship with God that was experienced in this perfect temple of Eden. And ever since then, things have never been the same. And the subsequent history of humanity and eventually Israel is a history of us seeking to recapture that connection that we once had with the divine. At the center of every longing, every human longing is a desire to be connected to something transcendent. It's a longing to go back to that perfect temple that we once had, where we had that relationship with our creator. There's this longing to get to the very bottom of all the various things that make us human, the various things that give us the human experience to find meaning in things like love and beauty and relationship. All of these things have transcendent entities to them. We know they do. We long for something more than just the physicalness of them. All of it is pointing us back to the beginning of our story, that we were designed and created for something more than just the physical world that we see, but there really was this transcendence that ought to have come. And as a result, we just have this endless toil, trying to get back to Eden, trying to get back to what we experienced in that garden. And the story of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the end, is a story of God seeing us in that state, desiring to bring his people back. Back to that place, back to that temple, as it were, with his presence present among us. He would raise up new priests. He would show new ways of showing that he was with his people. And if you know the history of Israel, we see various ways that God attempted to do this. He would first give them the tabernacle, which was this mobile tent uh, that became the center of religious life for Israel after their enslavement in uh, Egypt. Eventually, Israel would become its own nation and have its own kings. And there it would be where they would build this temple that we spoke of. And in the temple, there were actually many images of Eden and other symbols that hearken back to that original garden temple, the one where God's presence was experienced fully and completely. So the grandeur of the temple, I give all that context to say the grandeur of the temple built by Solomon was to be a reminder of the grandeur of the one who was to be worshiped, the grandeur of his presence, a presence that was in all creation, but represented by his people in Jerusalem. That's the backdrop of our passages today. But to understand what the minor prophets are speaking of, we do need to actually, we need to situate the three prophets in the history of Israel properly. Now, if you recall, Israel, they've been under threats of judgments thus far in our series. Uh, now, last week we saw that at this point, Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms uh, of Israel, were now in exile. They uh, now had been conquered by the Babylonians. Now the Babylonians had come to the capital city of Jerusalem. And as a result, the people were led off into exile, in captivity, in Babylon. But these three prophets, Malachi, Zechariah, and Haggai, they actually all are prophesying to Israel largely after that 70 years of exile. If you're here with us last week, you know we, we talked about that. Israel was in exile 
for 70 years. So what we see now are these minor prophets speaking to Israel as, they're, as they are returning home, back to their land. And in that return, Israel is reminded of just how incredibly leveled their nation had been in this siege. And in particular, their great city of Jerusalem had just been demolished. It was a brutal takeover by the Babylonians. And one of the most disorienting aspects of the siege was the loss of Israel's most prized possession. Because not only had Israel and their leaders been conquered, their lands been taken from them, their women and children brutalized, their men slaughtered. But on top of all of that, in 586 BC, at the hands of the Babylonians, the temple, Israel's temple, the centerpiece of what they believed of God's presence to be amongst them had been completely destroyed. That great symbol was now gone. And though God had led them out of exile, seeing the temple destroyed, the place where God's presence was uh, thought to have been, it only would have brought up the question for many, does this mean that God's presence is no longer with us? But again, if you know Israel's story, you might, you might know that when they return to exile, part of the story is that God led them back to the city to rebuild. God calls them to rebuild their city and to rebuild this temple. But when they begin to do that, there's a new tension that begins to arise. And those tensions are actually centered on Israel's very constrained vision for what they believed God was about to do in this next chapter of their lives, which brings us secondly to a constrained temple. I'll explain to you what I mean by that. All of that said, right, with all that in mind, we now need to turn to these passages. In particular, what the prophets are speaking of. Because in the process of this restored temple, this restored city, Malachi, Zechariah, and Haggai begin to speak. And Haggai, speaking of the new temple that's to come in verse 9 of our passage, says that the glory of this present house, right, the one that they're about to build, will be greater than the glory of the former house, the one that was destroyed says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Zechariah, he would go on, speaking of a coming king who would restore God's people, says, see, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. In other words, you will experience a new temple and a reestablishment of my presence represented among you, all of which will come through a victorious king that's coming. But here's the tension for Israel. They had a very specific way. They assumed that God would move. A very specific way they believed that God was going to bring back this temple, bring back his presence, bring back their king. They had a very particular vision of what was to come. And they wanted, they longed for the glory of ages past. And it would not satisfy them to experience anything else. There's an interesting story in Ezra 3, which is one of the historic books of the Old Testament, there's an interesting description of this very constrained vision that some had. Uh, if you go to Ezra 3, and I'll read just a portion of it here, but as the people began to build the foundations of the new temple, this is what it says in verse 12. Okay? He hear this right? as they're watching this restoration come. But many of the older priests and Levites 
and family heads who had seen the former temple, right? So these are old people that made it through exile who are now returning back to Israel. They remembered what it used to be like. It says that they wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. But they wept so loud, verse 13 says, that no one could distinguish the sound of shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was far away. What's happening there? Well, commentators note that there were these older priests that, again, would have seen how magnificent the previous temple was, and they were discouraged by this new one being built. At the time of Solomon, Israel was greatly prospering and had enough resources to build absolute extravagance. But now, they didn't. This new temple was not going to be the glorious temple like it had been before. Because for many, as they looked ahead, they didn't realize what God actually had in store. Because they really did believe that it was going to be this building that they built that was going to far exceed what God had done previously in Israel. And so because they had this very constrained vision, right, they didn't understand all that God was doing, you begin to see how they, over the course of time, begin to fall back into the exact same patterns that they used to fall into. If you read throughout the prophet Malachi in particular, you will see that because they did not have a proper vision of what God was doing, They fell into the same kind of injustices, the same kind of unrighteousness that they had before they were sent into exile. Malachi 1 tells us that they were dishonoring God's name and they were presenting blemished sacrifices. Malachi 2 tells us that their leaders were being unrighteous. Malachi 3 says that they were robbing God by not tithing their 10%. There were uh, unrighteous, ungodly uh, marriages, ungodly divorces, sorcery, impurity, and oppression. They fell back into the same patterns they once had fallen into. In other words, they were acting wickedly, and they were content to again dishonor God instead of rejoicing for and living in response to the restoration that he had brought to them. They had a complete lack of gratitude, which led them into rebellion. Let me pause there just for a second and simply say, for many of us, I think many of us fall prey to a similar kind of constrained vision of how God is working in our lives. Israel at this point had a long history of God's faithfulness, his commitments to keeping his promises, and a refusal to allow wickedness and injustice to persist and prevail in the nation. But they also experienced, even though they had been in, uh, unjust and wicked, they'd also experienced his mercy and his loving kindness. They had a long long list of how God had been good to them. And yet, even with all of that testimony, in the end, they still decided to live as they wanted to, to reject God and his commands. And in many ways, this became an absolute mockery of God. This constrained understanding of what God was doing amongst them that then led them into once again rejecting God's commands is a mockery of him when we don't find ourselves honoring him and loving him in the midst of what he's doing. And I think for many of us, we probably have similar kinds of constrained visions that don't see all that God's doing. And as a result, we allow ourselves 
to fall off in obedience, rejecting what God desires from us because we too often can have this constrained vision of what God desires from us, what he has for us. And for Israel, this constrained vision led to one of the most disorienting seasons of their entire history. As you might know, Malachi is the final book of the Old Testament. After Malachi writes what he writes, God goes silent. And there would not be another prophet for another 400 years. This is what we call the intertestamental period. For 400 years, the people did not hear from God. In that time, they would build their temples. They would worship in that temple. But during all of that time, they did not know what God had in store for them. They were still lost. Now, of course, we know that the Bible doesn't end at Malachi. There is much more that God intended to do, but they simply could not see past that constrained vision of the temple, centering everything once again on this one particular place, ignoring what God might be doing beyond it. And as a result, everything goes quiet. So what do we do then with what we see in Haggai, right? When Haggai says that the temple that's coming will be far greater than the former. I mean, we're already seeing that that's not the case. Or what about Zechariah when he talks about a victorious king that's supposed to come to Israel? Where is this victorious king? Because now they're just sitting in 400 years of absolute silence, not sure what's going on. Or what about with Malachi? When Malachi tells them that there's a messenger who's supposed to come and prepare the way for that king who's on his way to this temple. What are these prophecies about? Because they definitely have not been fulfilled within the people of God up until this point. Well, that brings us finally to the cosmic temple, something that is happening far beyond just the temple in Israel. First, who is the messenger that Malachi speaks of? Well, in Mark chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 7, we are told that Malachi was speaking of a prophet who would end the 400 years of silence. And that prophet who was to come was John the Baptist. He is the messenger sent to make way for the Lord. If you go to those passages, you will actually see this passage in Malachi referenced. I mean, and who is this king that John the Baptist is supposed to be proclaiming? Well, in Mark 1, John speaks of uh, the one who is to come. John the Baptist speaks of the one who's to come. This is what he says. He says, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Who's he talking about? Of course, he's talking about Jesus. Right? This, this prophecy that had come 400 years earlier was now being fulfilled in John the Baptist, and now the king that was proclaimed 400 years earlier that was going to now institute something far greater than Israel could have possibly comprehended, that king was coming, that king being Jesus. And what we're about to see is Jesus completely upend everyone's expectations about what the temple was supposed to be of what God was actually doing, what God desires to do amongst his people and how God desires to bring his people back into his presence. Jesus was going to show how the new temple truly was going to exceed the glory of the previous temple that they'd once had. Jesus was going to show that he was the king who was going to be far more victorious than any king that had ever come into Israel. And here's how he does it. In John chapter 2, 
Jesus is confronted by those who are challenging his authority as a teacher. If you guys want to throw that passage up, let me read this for us. This is what Jesus says. The Jews then responded to him, right, to him, Jesus. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They responded, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And he was raised from the dead. Uh, His disciples recalled what he said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. See, Jesus, for, for them, they always assumed that the temple was going to be the presence of God for the Jews. And as a people they would have totally rejected someone who claimed to tear it down. This was, again, the center of what they believed to be, who they were as a people, God's presence. But Jesus, knowing their conceptions were far too constrained, confronts them with a completely different notion of the temple. What Jesus says is, let me tell you something about the true presence of God. That building of bricks and stone is not where the presence of God is. Rather, Jesus says, I am the temple. I am the presence of God. And like when the temple was destroyed, when my people were in exile in Babylon, so now will my body, the true temple, be torn down and destroyed for my people who are still in exile. And though I will be torn down for three days in the grave, I will raise up that temple, my body, once again. You will see the restoration of this new temple. And that righteous and victorious king that Zechariah spoke of, I will be that king with a victory ultimately over the grave. Jesus is the temple of God where the presence of God rests. But in saying this, the people still had a constrained vision of what was being said. They still did not understand what Jesus was talking about. I mean, this becomes very apparent when Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. If you remember this story, in Acts 1, Jesus' disciples, who learned from him, right? just remember, they watched him die, and then they watched him resurrect again. He's about to ascend back to the Father. He, they ask him this. This is what they said. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Meaning... Is this where you're going to, like, make us great again? Is this where Israel becomes uh, this great and powerful, glorious nation once again? They're still stuck. After all that they've seen, they're still stuck on their nationalism. They can't see beyond the fact that what Jesus just said was, listen, that temple is no longer what you think it is. I have now raised up that temple. They're once again constrained. But what is Jesus' response? He says to them, It is not for you to know the time or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but catch this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, even the presence of Jesus in physical form was not all that God had in store. Because now that Jesus had accomplished his work on the cross, he was going to send his spirit to reside in all those who follow him, to reside in you. The power of the Spirit would dwell within us. Do you know what that means? God's presence 
within us makes us the temple of God. We are now the temple of God. Remember what I said before, the temple was supposed to be a proclamation to the world of the glories of God. And what do you see Jesus saying here? I'm going to give you my spirit. You're going to go out into the world to proclaim the glories of God because now the presence of God resides in you. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul asks the question, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? For those who are in Christ, the presence of God is not in a garden. It's not in a tabernacle. It's not in a glorious temple. The presence of God is within you. One final thing I'll say about that, though. Not only is it just within you individually, that would be a wrong understanding of what God's doing, but in 1 Peter 2, he speaks of all of us Christians, those who follow Jesus, being like living stones, who are building, being built up into a spiritual house to be a, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ as a community of faith. All Christians together are the place where God's presence dwells. This is what Jesus accomplishes. He makes you a glorious temple where God's presence now resides. The last thing I'm going to say is that that actually still isn't the end of the story. Because like the people, like uh, Jesus' disciples at the time, who had this very truncated, constrained vision, even though they heard these great truths, we're hearing these great truths, and yet we still probably have a constrained vision of what God is ultimately going to do. Remember what we said about the temple, that the temple overlapped God's eternal kingdom. It was a representation of that eternal kingdom. It was a, a symbol of God's presence in heaven. The reason why that matters is because the true end of the story is actually God's presence, not God's presence within you. The true end of the story is God's presence with his whole creation, a restored creation. You know, Revelation 21 speaks of, of course, heaven and earth reuniting, a new Jerusalem descending. Revelation 22 speaks of a restored Eden, a place where God dwells again with his people. It is the truest and fullest expression of the temple all of which centers on the accomplished work of Christ. The end of the story is us in the very presence of God in a restored creation, a new temple. And here's why all this matters. We must see the story of the temple as our story. You can read all throughout the Bible and all these various things about the temple of God, but we have to see it as our story. If you are in Christ, the presence of God makes you God's temple until one day Christ returns and restores all of creation. And on this Palm Sunday, we celebrate the beginning of what Jesus has accomplished. Our king has arrived. The king proclaimed many years ago, he's come. And now, like the people of Israel at Jesus' time, we await his coming again. When we, again, when we will again experience a whole new understanding of what God intends to do. And so my hope would be, that on a day like today, on a, on a Palm Sunday celebration day, we would have eyes to see not only what God is doing right now within us, for we are his temple, but that we would also see what he is doing into the future, what our victorious king has accomplished, a restored creation. May that give us hope every day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, for your presence. We thank you that it, it is a... Uh, a presence that 
was within us as a result of what Jesus has done. We thank you for your spirit that resides here. And Lord, uh, you, like with the temple, desire for that temple to be a proclamation of the glories of God. So God, for each of us here who trust in Jesus, whose spirit resides within us, may we be a people in the way that we live, in the places that we go, be a people that proclaim the glories of who you are. Give us hope in that as we have eyes to see the future of a day when all of creation will be restored, experiencing Eden once again in your presence. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.